KCF Technologies presents Industrial Transformation, Stories of Failure and Success from the Front Lines of American Manufacturing. Welcome back to the Industrial Transformation Podcast. This is Jeremy Frank, and we are continuing with our conversations on the workforce, the future workforce, and how we get the people we need who can solve the problems that need to be solved. And I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. Jess Menold, who is a, a person I've known for a while. She's an assistant professor in mechanical engineering and engineering design at Penn State University. So I'll just say welcome, Jess. Thanks so much. I'm so excited to be here. Yeah, I'm glad to have you here. I just, I think that the the things that you're working on and that you're you're really in a position to influence are some of the most important, which is just increasing the um, the attraction and the the enthusiasm and the the excitement among young people who can become young engineers who can help go solve the world's problems. At least that's how I see part of what you're doing. Does it? Can you give us just a a bit of background on uh, how you came into the role that you're in and and just your personal background? Yeah, absolutely. I'd be happy to. Um, so, so I actually went to undergrad at Penn State. So I'm a Penn Stater. Um, very disappointing football season, but we won't talk about that. <laughs> um, so I, I studied mechanical engineering, and um, you know, all growing up, I was really passionate about art. But I also loved, you know, taking things apart and understanding how things worked. And I grew up with um, a father and a mother who really encouraged that curiosity. Um, you know, I, I remember my dad sitting down and, and taking apart the washing machine with me so we could figure out what was off balance and laying out all the parts. And, um, and so, I, you know, I grew up with that support and with that encouragement to pursue engineering. And I think, um, you know, I, I recognize that not everyone has that same, that same push and that same um, support network to pursue, to pursue engineering or even to consider engineering. And so, um, you know, when I got my PhD and um, when I decided to, to kind of become a professor and, and, and go forward with that path, um, it, was, it was mainly because I absolutely love research. I love getting to um, kind of run my own lab and, and almost have a startup with a, a lot more stability, I like to say. Um, but I also really love teaching. I love um, kind of encouraging the next generation of engineers to think creatively and problem solve effectively um, and really tap into their own creative abilities. Um, I think that that's something that is so critical to being, you know, quote, a good engineer um, is this creative problem solving ability and, and recognizing that, um, you know, you don't necessarily have to be the best at math and science to be a good engineer, right? You have to be really curious and you have to, you know, have this drive to understand how things work and understand what the, the root problem is and, and try and figure out how to solve it. I think that's to me much more important. Um, and so, yeah, so, I mean, that's, that's kind of why I decided to be a professor is to, to really engage with students and, and kind of provide them with that same support structure that I had growing up. Yeah, that's great. That, yeah, the, the need for creative thinking and, and divergent thinking, I think is, is increasingly recognized as vital. And I just, I think, I agree. I think that's just so important. The, I wanted just, just for the listeners, the, I think it would be good to just give a, some, 
scoping of what makes what you're doing at Penn State so unique and special, it, just because then it leads to kind of the, yes, you're, you're doing research and, and you're doing teaching, but the, um, the, the sumo bots, I think, is, is the, uh, something that I think is just really important I want to start with of, of talking about, which is this, it's, it's a senior or I guess a junior level design class at Penn State where you had students designing actual robots that fought each other in, you know, sumo style. Can you just talk a little bit about that and yeah, why you did it and what the outcome was and what was special about it? Sure. Absolutely. Um, so I, I, I'm going to kind of give a, a more broader or kind of higher level comment first, which is that I, I firmly believe that, um, and I'm really passionate about giving students the opportunities to get hands on. Right. So, um, I, I, am, I also serve as the associate director of, of uh, inclusion and diversity at the Learning Factory, which is our, our university makerspace. And so, um, you know, all of my, my efforts to engage students um, and, and really encourage them into design, I do it through hands-on engineering projects, right? And so um, in mechanical engineering in particular, we have this very large ME340 course uh, which is the uh, Intro to Engineering Mechanical Engineering Design course that we have for our junior students. Um, and, and typically, you know, it's taught every semester in different ways by, by lots of really phenomenal faculty. And um, when it was my turn to teach it in uh, this past semester, I wanted to choose a project that would uh, really push students to um, not only do something that was hands-on, but really engage uh, with mechatronics, engage in coding, engage in new areas that maybe they haven't gotten the opportunity to, to experience. Um, for example, like autonomous robots. And I, I wanted to do that because, you know, I think, Jeremy, you're obviously very familiar with this, but in industry, right, we're all moving towards and, and in, in implementing industry 4.0 technologies, right? Like industrial internet of things are really becoming the future of, of manufacturing settings, of engineering work. And I wanted to make sure that I was giving the students, um, in a way, a, a really fun, you know, silly competition, you know, which robot can last in the ring the longest, but a competition that at its core had a lot of elements that were really going to resonate with them in future careers. So, um, so yeah, we chose this, this really fun challenge. Um, I put a lot on the line for the students. Uh, I basically said, you know, the, the winner take all, winner gets an A for sure, you know, automatic A. I'm not sure if that's allowed at Penn State, but that's what we did. And Who cares, uh, right? Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, now that this is being recorded, I should have looked into that. But uh, <laughs> but yeah, and, 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 you know, it was so wonderful. I think kind of creating that really fun competition spirit where these teams were just so excited and so interested in, you know, well exploring different types of strategies, you know, whether they were going to have a defensive strategy. And I even got to teach a little bit on game theory through this class. And so um, it was just really this wonderful opportunity where students were getting to connect some of the control theory they had learned with some of the theory about machine design they had learned and, um, and getting to do it all in a really um, tactile way that I, it was just such a blast and such an, such a great opportunity to teach. And I'm, you know, of course, really thankful to the department um, for, for kind of allowing me the creative freedom to, to take the course in a, in a very new direction. Um, but yeah, that was just, it was just a blast. 
And I think yeah. just to, just to describe kind of the the scenario, you know, so picture an amphitheater, sort of a a large, you know, university classroom setting, and then down in the front in the in the wedge part of the the presentation area, there's a circle on the floor about the size of a sumo wrestling circle, and there's two robots, and there's these these students of five inch five uh, mechanical engineering students who have built this thing, and they've they've slaved for the last three months to to embed all this technology and weaponry into it. And then they just turn them loose fully autonomous, which is fascinating. I just think because I I've been a, uh, there, there's a, a show that was on comedy central back in the nineties. I think it probably was called battle bots. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think it was just, it was, it was really kind of interesting that that even ended up on a, a channel, you know, a comedy channel, cause it wasn't really a comedy show, but somehow somebody had an interest in exposing people to, the entertainment and also the the interest in actually designing machines and making them work, but also making it fun. And I just think you did a masterful job of, of that. I mean, there were department heads there. There were other faculty there. I was there with my kids just watching and just the excitement of watching these these college students know that their their project was going to literally live or die in front of them in the ring was just it was just amazing. I thought it was great. Yeah, it was it was a phenomenal class. And again, that you know, the college and the department are so supportive of these of these efforts. And um, it was just, yeah, I totally agree with you, right? The the entertainment value of that, it's almost like gladiators, but you know, autonomous robot style. It was just so 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 much fun, and the students were just so engaged and so dedicated, right? Because they really, they you know, their project was on the line. It was just uh, really a ton of fun to teach it. Yeah, well, and what I want to talk about next is, is just how important that is. You know, it's it's one thing. It's just, you know, it's fun. You know, for my my kids who I had there, it's fun to watch one robot try to beat another robot. But the, the reality is this wasn't like the, the BattleBots TV show where it was entertainment value. I mean, they were they were building like really advanced technology into these things. Autonomous control using sensors to make sure that they could sense the other robot and pursue it. And just it was really amazing technology. In addition to the the um, in addition to I guess making you know making it enjoyable or fun or competitive, but that I think that's so important because I was I was actually just exposed to a number recently that there were you know young people were assessed about the level of interest that they have in manufacturing and designing things, and manufacturing specifically was the lowest ranked in all categories in this assessment. Oh, wow. And, and 50, more than 50%, more than half of the respondents among young people expressed zero interest in going into smart manufacturing. And I personally think that part of that, the reason for that is that they, they, they just don't understand what it's like. And, and in some cases, it's on us for not presenting them examples like you have of what it's like to actually design amazing technology and have it do something important. I'm just curious. Yeah. I mean, I, I just see yeah. you as being a real standout for addressing that because it's a really big challenge that, that Absolutely. all of, you know, the industrial world and especially the, the manufacturing world is facing, but nobody has a very good, uh, no, nobody's addressing it very well. And I think you are, can you comment on that? Yeah. Well, well, first of all, I, I really appreciate it. And, um, you know, I have, so many other faculty to thank for the support and it's definitely a village for these for all of the the classes and efforts we run but i will say um yeah i I agree with you i think um 
I think it is on us to really get students engaged and help them to understand. And, and Jeremy, what I will say is a little bit, it's how we're presenting manufacturing to them, right? Um, but I, I, I think sometimes a lot, you know, and this is what I, I at least find in my own experiences is that students really, the barrier to entry they feel, right, into, into some of these really complex technologies is just seemingly so high to them, right? They perceive this, this huge, um, a huge barrier because you know it's such complex technology and i think the um success of these courses is that i i don't really give them the option to say well it's too hard and i can't do it and i think that by setting the expectation you know in this course i actually just this semester taught um, a freshman course where um you know they had a project where they needed to come up with an IoT technology, an IoT product at the end. And when I first introduced that to these, you know, freshmen, right, who, who do not have the same level of experience that my juniors had, um, you know, I was I was met with pretty shocked faces. But, uh, you know, what I found you need to do is just kind of really break it down for the students in a way that they can see a path to this final, you know, technology, to this final skill set that they're going to gain through this really breaking it down by using commonplace technologies now that we have, you know, Arduinos and uh, Raspberry Pis and all these microcontrollers that are um, so really reduce the barrier to coding, to mechatronics, to wiring your first circuit. And I think that showing them that, yes, you know, the final thing, an IoT product is is quite complex and that's going to be hard to get to, but that the steps are not that big of a leap and that together we can kind of get there, right? Giving them that that scaffolding to, to kind of make the leaps is really important. And um, it's just great to see these students at the end of a semester really look back and say, wow, I, you know, for example, I just had, you know, my final presentations with my, my freshmen today. And one of them made a, basically a, a desktop Roomba for their dorm room, <laughs> mm -hmm. for their dorm room desk. And it, it works, you know, it can sense edges, it can uh, sense the wall, it can vacuum, um, and they made this and, um, you know, when they first proposed this, they were like, there's no way we're going to be able to do it. Uh, it just seems way too complex. And, and they did it. And I think that showing them, you know, well, you know, yes, it is complex, but you know, you can take an Arduino and you can wire it up with X, Y, or Z pretty quickly. And you can test things in really small prototypes that can kind of help you to, to get to where you're going. Right. I think it's this idea of intelligent failure and fast failure, right? Setting them up so that, yes, they might fail, but the failure is going to be small and they're going to learn from it and they're going to continue to advance through that failure and kind of build up their resilience and, and also their interest in the topic. Yeah. And if, for anyone who might not know, which, you know, I normally wouldn't have uh, the, you know, what an Arduino and a, and a Raspberry Pi these are, you know, microchips that you can, what the students are doing, they're programming, they're programming chips and building an actual system that's fully autonomous in a, in a lot of ways, similar to an autonomous car. And so I think what, you know, what you're really talking about, it is a big challenge. That's one of the things, I mean, those students just in that class did a lot of things I've never done. And my, one of my first observations was, wow, you know, some, some of them are probably going to, going to totally fail because, it is a, re a really difficult challenge. And I think maybe that's why, you know, in, in, in the work world and in the, the education world, I think sometimes we are reticent to lay down a big challenge because you know that some people will fail 
and then I don't know, be disheartened by it, or you'll have to deal with the consequences. But I just, I think that's notable. You, 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 um, you just took that right on. I'm curious, did like, do you have some students that fail and what do you do? I mean, if they just, you give them a big challenge and they just totally lay an egg, what do you do then? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think failure is, um, failure is really common actually. I think, I think it would be weirder if I had, you know, if nobody failed, that would be strange. Um, so, so of course, yeah, I think I, I will, and I'm sure all of my students will, would, would also agree that I have really high expectations for my, for students in my class. Um, but I don't just have these high expectations and then kind of say, okay, go do it. Right. Um, I, I think that understanding that failure is a part of learning is um, really core to my teaching philosophy. And I try to um, reframe failure as much as I possibly can. And I try to highlight times that I've failed. So, you know, if they're trying to code something or wire something up, you know, I'll try, I'll sit down and and try to help them as much as I can. And, And there are times when, you know, even I wire a circuit incorrectly. And it's a great opportunity to say, okay, I just messed up and let's talk about it. Um, but I, I, I think that again, it's really about, you know, you can always learn something from an experience and I think you can learn the most from failure. And so explaining to them that your robot, the the final day, right. When we come in and we're going to put them in the ring, your robot might not work, right. You might put it in the ring and you might have, uh, you know, a case of, a wire got loose, uh, some code was broken, who knows, and it just might not work. And if that happens, it's going to be okay because you're going to be a good engineer and you're going to go back and tell me what happened and what went wrong and explain it to me. And it's not going to affect your grade, right? You're not going to fail because there was this catastrophic failure or something like that, but you're at least going to do some root cause analysis and tell me what happened and reflect on it, right? And tell me what you learned. You know, maybe don't, maybe don't bring your, your very, your delicate robot over in a really bumpy car or something, right? Whatever it might be that caused, you know, X, Y, or Z wire to fall out of place. Um, Again, I I think, you know, I I don't know how how successful I am at this. I I think you'd have to ask my students, but I I do really try to reframe failure as a learning opportunity um, and not necessarily as, you know, some sort of reflection on the student's self-worth. Yeah. I think it's great. You know, I, I'm just, I'm reading, um, rereading a book by Charles Koch where he, he is actually his father talks to, he, so he's the, the CEO of Koch Industries, which owns some companies that we work with pretty closely. Mm-hmm. And his father's phrasing on this was that, um, was that failure is sometimes a blessing in disguise, but it's always the best teacher. And I definitely, I mean, that definitely is my experience. As a matter of fact, I, I was... I came in and did a guest lecture. I think it was that same class at ME yeah, 40, the junior design. And I had done a few of those before and I, and I had come in and talked about something that I thought was interesting to the group, like entrepreneurship, or this is how I started a company or whatever. And it was always just sort of a, a, a dud. And then it was a, a, a professor who'd been on the business side of Penn state. I was asking him like, what, what is it that you think would be most interesting to the students? And he said, what if you just come in and talk about some of your failures? <laughs> and like, and I, um, and I really just kind of went with it. And I, I went down and just started writing down like very real uh, episodes of failure that I've been through. 
And I like I, I didn't stop writing for for like an hour. I had pages full, <laughs> and so yeah. it was, it, and the students loved it because I was just talking about things that I actually had experienced that were both like legitimate failures they could relate to, but also were were things I'd really learned from. And I just ever since that's the only thing I talk about. If I ever you know talk to I'm sure you've seen that you know because it's I, I've just found since that that's the the best way to Absolutely. to relate to people because that's what they're really wondering about. Absolutely. Um, and, and I think, Jeremy, you actually, you know, um, this is this I completely agree, right, is that the, it means so much to students to hear that these these successful, you know, entrepreneurs who are these huge deals, rock star engineers have also, you know, messed up. <laughs> so, um, you know, with a colleague of mine at the, the College of Engineering, Matt Barone, we actually started doing what we call fudge up Fridays, right? Um, and this is something I had been doing in my classes. I actually picked it up from uh, a startup I was um, kind of um, advising in, in Germany. But um, it, basically, it's just this practice of, of having stand-ups on Fridays and going around and saying what your biggest mess up that week was and really just making a, a culture of kind of laughing and learning about it, right? And, and kind of normalizing failure. And so, you know, we started doing these, these Fudge Up Fridays with the college and bringing in really, you know, great alumni back to come and speak about, hey, you know, I, I really messed up. Here's what happened. Having professors that they, that these students see, you know, as, as these experts in these areas, having these professors come in even and say, hey, here's my Fudge Up. Here's what I did when I was your age, right? And I failed my fluids exam or whatever it might be. Um, but a hundred percent, Jeremy, that's, it's really just this, this normalization of failure and, and reframing it up exactly as you said, as this, this learning opportunity and this opportunity to really build your own resilience. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Can you talk about that? I, one of the things I wanted to make sure we talked about is, so fudge up Fridays and, um, build nights, I think is the name mm -hmm. that, you know, for these, these other things. So, you know, leaving sumo bots behind because it's, you know, it's constantly evolving. Can you just share some things about what you're doing going forward to really keep working at this, this thing to engage students and get them really um, focused on the things that, that will motivate them? Yeah, sure. So um, as a part of my efforts at the, the learning factory, which again, it's our university makerspace. So just kind of think hands-on tools, bunch of students building stuff all the time. Um, we run these, uh, a few different events. So we run build nights, which are these, really just wonderful. <laughs> They're like some of my favorite, some of my favorite times in the semester, but we have um, these kind of open nights in the learning factory where we will have either somebody from industry or somebody from a faculty member kind of come in, talk about their story, their journey through engineering. And we do this normally while we're feeding the students because I always promise to feed them if they show up for a build night. So <laughs> that's important. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, they get to eat dinner, they hear about this faculty member or this industry alumni um, kind of journey through engineering, and it's normally very personal, right? It's not about research, it's not about their work, it's, it's about their personal journey, which I think is um, really important for students to hear, right? And, and as any good community, there's always shared experiences, and I think that that's what's key. And then following that, um, I run something called the Maker Ambassadors, which is a um, group of of young women engineering students that um, kind of help me to facilitate these build nights because typically we have anywhere from, you know, 50 to 100 engineering students working in the learning factory with us. And we, um, we run really hands-on fun projects. So we have built, we've done everything from woodworking projects to 
Uh, we've coded some laser light pianos. We have made, um, you know, a, just a ton of stuff with the laser cutter. And the goal of these build nights is to really expose the students to, you know, various manufacturing technologies uh, to give them a really hands-on um, design experience where they can walk out of the learning factory with something that they've built with their own two hands. Um, and that also they can they can have that that artifact, that item, that experience. And let's say they, they fail something or they get a bad grade or they're not, you know, they have a bad day in a class, right? They still have that experience to say, you know what, I am going to be a good engineer, right? Because I built this with my hands or I, I did this and um, I know I can do this, right? And so that's kind of the goal of Build Nights and, and um, Budget Fridays. Very similarly, it's it's also a part of my work in the Learning Factory. So, you know, we've just got a ton of good stuff happening in the Learning Factory. But um, Budget Fridays, similarly, is about, again, just kind of bringing a bunch of students together. So we call it Budget Friday because we give them uh, hot fudge Sundays. You'll notice that food is a common theme in the events I run. <laughs> <laughs> um, but we, yeah, we give them basically, you know, every Friday or maybe two Fridays a month. Um, we have as many students as we can cram into Kunkel Lounge, which is one of the buildings on campus. Um, so sometimes we have 100 to 180 students show up. Um, we give them free ice cream from the creamery, which is always, you know, good stuff. And uh, yeah, we have a panel of, of engineering faculty, of industry alumni, of current, you know, some more senior engineering students that just talk about times that they fudged up <laughs> and how did they push through it and what did they learn and um you know they've been really raw honest conversations and i think a lot of our students have really appreciated that yeah that's great it is it's funny we we do the the um the food thing with students you do sort of lose touch about how important that is just having <laughs> having access to free food when you're a student yeah, it's such a draw, but it, but it's smart because it's just you know then you you get there and you actually have this major learning experience that you might not otherwise go to, and so it's just smart on your part. I wanted to ask just one one thing if you could talk about it, you know. So there's there's those things, and there's also I know there's always a, a stream of you know senior capstone projects and and research projects. I wanted to make sure I gave you the 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 chance to uh, describe. How you know a lot of the people that listen to this podcast are, are you know senior people, people like engineers, leaders in industry, and you know potentially could have the the interest in engaging in these projects and in engaging in you know sponsoring things. Can you give an idea of like what are the things that that are most valuable or that you would highlight? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so there's we have so many opportunities um, for engagement, you know, just across the college. Um, for industry uh, collaborators. And I think, you know, a few key things that, that I'll discuss, but again, there are so many more. Um, but the Learning Factory itself has just a strong um, ties to industry. And so, you know, as you said, Jeremy, we, we have something called Capstone, which is just a great opportunity for um, industry to come in and kind of sponsor a team of our senior engineering students to work on, you know, a real problem that they're having at their company um, and it, it, you know, it gets the students to meet and meet, you know, real world engineers, it quotes, you know, and work on an actual industry project that really matters to a company. Um, but also it allows this, this company to kind of get a really intimate understanding of, you know, four of our, our top engineers in the college. Um, so that's a, that's a really traditional way that we have for industry to kind of collaborate. Um, some new ways that, that I'm 
brainstorming and kind of leading our um, different ways to engage with build nights, with maker ambassadors, um, uh, with some of these larger learning factory events. So, you know, as I said, I run these build nights, which um, we have kind of pilot tested with a few of our industry collaborators where, um, you know, these these industry folks come and they kind of say, okay, we'd like to run a build night where we show engineering students what a day in our life looks like, what, um, you know, some of our engineering work might be. So we, we had some folks come in and kind of teach, uh, you know, just a whole bunch of engineering students how they conduct vibration analysis, right, on, on some aerospace parts. And so similarly, we had their industry panelists come in and talk about their journeys. And, and it, you know, I think a lot of recruiting events can feel very stale at times, right? Like very, um, you know, transactional. Here's my resume. Uh, here's who I am and on to the next person. And, you know, doing this recruiting event through a build night really allowed the recruiters to see students working on a real engineering problem and work side by side with those students. And um, it gave the students the opportunity to, to really understand what their, their job might look like and to understand all of the cool problems that they might get to work on. And I think, um, you know, it was just so much more of an organic networking event. <laughs> it was really just a, um, really a lot of fun. And so, you know, we have opportunities to sponsor a single build night um, in similar ways where, where industry partners can kind of sign up and sponsor a build night and come in and, and get to work with anywhere from, you know, 20 to, to 50 engineers um, that, that sign up and are interested in kind of coming to that build night. Um, and then, you know, we've also got different kinds of sponsorship through, uh, through research, right? So I do a lot of research in, in product design and engineering design and, you know, increasing the efficiency of the engineering design process. And so there's always opportunity, opportunities to work on, on more targeted, uh, higher level research projects with, with the faculty here at Penn State. Yeah, that's great. I appreciate that. And I'm sure our, the industrial listeners will, will appreciate that too, especially the access to the students. I mean... Sure. It's it's both it's it's access to the expertise, but you know one of the big dynamics in the industry right now that that everyone's conspicuously aware of, or at least most people that are paying attention are, but nobody has a good solution for is just there. There's real workforce challenges. Uh, there's just so many experts that are getting ready to retire out of the workforce, and because you know partly uh, because of just the baby boom, you know population swell, but but more it's just because you know, young people aren't drawn or, or at least don't think that they should be drawn to these, to these roles. There's just a, there's a pending shortage. I mean, it's actually not pending anymore. It's current. There's a current shortage of people that know how to make things work, mm -hmm. you know, solve problems, roll up their sleeves and, and design something, whether it's, you know, circuitry or sensors or IOT or whatever. Um, there's something I wanted to ask you about because it came up when I talked to, to Justin Schwartz, Dean of the College of Engineering, mm -hmm. uh, a couple of weeks ago. He he said something that really surprised me. I just, I, you know, he just knows these the numbers, like the big picture numbers. And he said two things that are interrelated. One is that at Penn State, you know, which is, you know, quite a prestigious engineering school, half of the students are either new, like newly graduating in the United States because they came from, you know, elsewhere in the world, uh, or they're the first generation in their family to go to college. It, more than half of Penn State graduates in engineering. And um, 
that's the first thing. And then the second thing is basically that the, um, you know, we talk a lot about inspiring young people and what he said, just, I think very practically is just that the, the real motivation that a lot, a lot of young people have is they just want to be able to get a job. They want a job that's going to pay them well for the education that they have. And it was just so simple. And I I think that, um, you know, for what you're doing, I think what you're doing is connecting these dots that, that helps to show that path, you know, to the, to these people that if you have these skills, you are in such high demand and the world urgently needs people who are doing these things. I'm just curious if, um, like what you see when you interact with the student population and you see them going through that process from a freshman who is very uncertain or doesn't know what they really want to do to a senior who then has an internship under their belt and they get a job offer. What is, what are your observations on what the students really think and what pushes their buttons and what, what we could do better? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think one thing, and I, I completely agree, right? I, I think this is a comment. I think all humans need this, but you know, students need a light at the end of the tunnel. They need to be able to see themselves, you know, as a, with a successful career and, and in a, a successful workplace where they enjoy what they're doing. And I think that, um, you know, a lot of times and, and the way a lot of, uh, a lot of engineering, um, systems are set up, right. You take your core courses early on, you take them, your, your freshman, your senior, or your freshman and sophomore year, or so you're just kind of overloaded with math and physics and, and you a little bit lose this connection to that light at the end of the tunnel, right? That, that application, the practical application of the knowledge that you're learning sometimes gets lost. And I think that that is something um, that these extracurricular activities that, you know, I run at the Learning Factory, that my colleagues run, right? The Learning Factory is, is just so awesome at running these, um, that that's our goal, right? Is to, to kind of show them that the light at the end of the tunnel is there, and to exactly what you said, Jeremy, to connect the dots that, yes, you're learning, you know, all of these fundamentals, um, but that there is this really cool practical application for them. Um, and that there's this whole industry and this whole field that desperately needs them to be creative problem solvers um, and, and needs them to, you know, think creatively and, and try and solve these really wicked problems um, in ways that have never been solved before. Right. I mean, that's, that's really what we're looking at now is that we need, we need wildly different ideas to solve these problems. And, um, so I think from the student perspective, right, it's, it's all about making sure that they still see that light, that they still can envision themselves as an engineer, that they can, um, you know, adopt that an engineering identity, right. That they, that they can understand that engineering is more of a mindset and less of, you know, a prescribed field, but that you can just do so much with an engineering degree, right? That you can, um, again, really, it's just all about creative problem solving. Um, and so I think that that's, at least from from what I hear with students, that's when I, I hear them the most tired, the most exhausted, kind of the most, the closest to burnout or to, to kind of switching gears or switching careers is when they, they lose sight of that, that light, they lose sight of the, the, you know, this is where I'm going to be. I'm going to have this successful career at the end. Um, and so I think, you know, any, any chance to, to reconnect them to that, to show them how fun engineering is, um, is necessary. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I just, I think it's really important work. I think there's, there's, it's challenging, you know, you're, you're finding a lot of success at something that, that most people really struggle with. And it, it's, um, most people in terms of, you know, the, 
traditional engineering education. I mean, specifically, it's I think it's really really important. I, I have um, a couple questions. I, I to start. I was the, the clock always goes so quickly, <laughs> but to start wrapping it up, I, I want to ask you the same question I ask everyone on these interviews, which is like, so you're working on that, and you're you're earlier in, early into your career as a as a professor of mechanical engineering. I'm curious to know what what is it that you find most motivating as a as a problem for you to solve? You know, something that you really just you're really focused on and you want to improve uh, over the course of, of your career. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to happy to talk about that. I so, you know, there's, of course, lots of, of research problems that keep me up at night that I'm, I'm super motiva- motivated to solve. But I think that's, you know, what what we've been talking a lot about today is um, is about education. And so I'll kind of stick with that vein. something that that really keeps me up at night is that even though, right, I, you know, I, I, I obviously very nice to hear that, that, you know, you believe I'm being uh, successful in these things, but I, I still lose students, right? I still have taught students that come to me, you know, a year later and say, I'm switching. I don't want to be in engineering anymore. And um, that is something that really, really does keep me up at night because so often they're phenomenal students, right? They're, they were some of the best students in my design class or engineering class. And, um, and to see this, that there is still this attrition rate is something that, um, that does keep me up and I, that I'm incredibly passionate about solving. Um, I think that, you know, we need to, to widen what the societal perception of, of who, what an engineer is, who an engineer looks like, right? Um, because I just, you know, I see so many students that, that kind of start to drop out because they say, well, well, I don't think like an engineer. I don't really fit the engineering mold. And um, I think that that's one thing that keeps me up at night is trying to, trying to figure out a way to um, help students, help prospective students to see themselves as a creative problem solver and understand that that is the core of engineering, right? That that is really the key ability that they need to be successful. And then figuring out, you know, what kind of scaffolding do I need to provide as a professor to really get them to the finish line, right? You know, how, what, what structures, what programs, what experiences do these students need to not only get them in the door, you know, here at Penn State Engineering, but to retain them to make sure that they're not surviving, but that they're thriving. Um, that's something that, that keeps me up at night that I'm, that I'm like committed to, to figuring out and solving. And I think at least right now, I really believe part of the answer to that is through design. It's through um, hands-on, fun challenges that um, really encourage this creativity and um, innovativeness in our students and give them the opportunity to, to again, roll up their sleeves, to, to just try something, to build something, you know, with their, with their own two hands and see if it works, um, pretty quickly. Right. So that's, that's kind of what, what I'm really passionate about. Yeah. I appreciate that, Jess. That I am, that was actually one of the things on my list. And I, I'd like to spend just a minute on that before I move to the next question is, um, is just, uh, equity and inclusivity in engineering, you know, whether it's, you know, gender inclusivity or, or racial or ethnic inclusivity, 
I'm, I'm curious just to hear, I mean, I think that's part of what you're talking about is that, you know, that, that that's where some of that, um, you know, people fall out of, of interest because they don't feel like it fits them. I'm curious, just like how things are, how things are right now, or is it getting better? Or is it getting worse? Or are we doing enough for inclusive to encourage inclusivity in engineering at a place like Penn state for, uh, you know, in those dimensions? Yeah. I, I, um, so we, again, you, you spoke with, with Dean Schwartz and, um, this is something that is really, you know, near and dear to his heart. It was one of the kind of his visions for the college was to get to, to gender equity was to increase the number of uh, minoritized students that we have in engineering. And I think that, um, it really feels like we are, there's a lot of momentum, Jeremy. There's just so much um, movement. I feel like we are actually starting to get somewhere, right? I think so long it's kind of been this like cycle of, of I don't know if we're, we're making as much progress as we should be, but it does feel like there's um, a lot of momentum behind these initiatives. And I, I do think, you know, give us another few years and and there's going to be some some real changes to to kind of the landscape of engineering here at Penn State because there are so many people who are committed to to working towards this myself included and I think you know diversity and inclusion is something that is not is not um, a skill that you can just pick up right it's 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 all of, it's about education it's about educating yourself about your own biases and that is something that is lifelong and I think that there are enough people, myself included, in the college that are committed to, you know, this lifelong learning, this lifelong kind of commitment to creating cultures that are inclusive, that yes, I, I think we're headed in the right direction. And I'm, I'm really excited to see um, where we go and to see how all of these activities that we're, that we're spinning up now, that we're testing out, that we're trying to create the supportive, inclusive culture that we need to really um, create and retain a diverse workforce. I'm, I'm just really excited to see, you know, how these things pan out. Um, and again, and to learn and to learn what, you know, what we're doing wrong and learn what we need to do right. Yeah. It's just so important. It, it just, again, the um, it, it's a win-win because the, the workforce needs the best people and people need the, the jobs, you know, and the, the stability and the jobs and it, it applies to everyone. Absolutely. And it, um, I mean, just personally, it, you know, I have, I have a son and three daughters and I would be really interested. I, you know, I work with them very, uh, I've been very ineffective in encouraging them to become a, uh, engineers so far. <laughs> and, and I also know, you know, our, our, our co-founder, uh, professor Gary Koopman, his wife, Barbara Bogue was, was heavily involved in the women in engineering program at Penn state for years and, and really worked at it just increasing the percentage of, of female engineers at Penn state, which leads to my next question. Cause I, I, I just, um, you know, this is something we can measure. I think, you know, you, when you look out a few years or five years or 10 years, what do you think it's going to be like when we get to 2030 in terms of, you know, you know, that specific problem, just getting, getting kind of like wide open appeal, so that the most talented people can 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 understand how to, how to find roles, you know, if they're interested sure. in, in sure. you know these engineering roles. Yeah. So I mean, I always joke. Uh, I always say, I think you know we'll we'll know that we've we've done great when it's uh, you know 100 percent women in mechanical engineering or something, right? Like, 
you know, nobody, and I, you know, I think some of my male colleagues kind of balk at that sometimes, but I often point out that, that nobody, um, nobody seemed to raise any eyebrows when it was an all, all men or mostly men, um, department. And so I think, you know, obviously I'm joking. I, I, but I do really think we'll, we'll hit gender parity, we'll hit gender equity. Um, and I hope the same is true, you know, across for, for minoritized students as well. Right. And, and that it's not just a, you know, that, that it's so much more than just men and women. It's this intersectionality that we need to, to focus on, right. The intersection of so many identities. Um, and so I guess, I guess that's a long way of saying, uh, I think in 2030, I, I hope in 2030 or in, you know, in, in 10 years that we have reached a place where, um, the intersection of all of these identities of, of race, of gender, of sexuality, of, of every single thing is, is really, um, celebrated is the diversity is really um celebrated and i i think we're we're getting there right you know in industry there's so many studies to point to the financial benefits of diversity of having diverse particularly engineering design teams right where you get more innovative solutions um but often it's a double-edged sword because uh you know having differences can can lead to conflict and so i think my hope is that we reach a place where this diversity is really, is truly celebrated, um, not ignored. You know, I, I don't think that makes sense, but, but again, really just celebrated for the strength that it is right for the strength of having so many different perspectives on a problem, um, which is always good, right? That's how you get creative solutions is, is through multiple different diverse perspectives. Um, so that's, you know, I, I just, I hope that the, the landscape looks, you know, shockingly different. Um, well, you know what, here's what I hope. I hope that the, the landscape of engineering in 2030 looks incredibly different, but it's not shocking that it looks different, mm. you know, that we've put in the work and we know why it looks different. I like that. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, it is, it's, it's, um, it, it's a really nice picture to paint because that's where we really need to be. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So the last question I have is one I think you'll really appreciate, and it's just a question of, of uh, divergent creative thinking, you know, which is so core to you, which is why I think you'll appreciate it. And the question is, is can you um, can you share with us something that that you really believe, something you hold to be true, but that most people disagree with you about? Hmm. That's, that's a tough one. Let me, let me think about that. Something that I truly believe. Okay. So actually it's not as tough as I thought. Um, so something that I really firmly, truly believe that I find a lot of people disagree with me on. I really believe that creativity is a muscle and that you've got to learn how to flex it and you've got to go to the, the quotes gym <laughs> and you've got to work at it. And I think that most people, you know, when I say that really look at me um, and I hear common things, right? Like, well, I'm just not creative. I'm just not artistic. I just don't have that. I don't have a left brain. I'm a right brain kind of whatever it might be. Um, you know, I, I often find this, this, this pushback. Well, I just, I'm just not creative. I just wasn't born with a creative bone in my body. I hear that a lot. And I, um, you know, it's just not true. I think that everyone can be creative, but it's a muscle. And if you let it deteriorate, then yeah, it's going to be hard for you. And so I think you've got to work at it. And that's, 
really something I try and hit home with my students because I hear it most frequently with engineers, right? Well, I'm not creative, right? I'm an engineer. I'm logical. I, I do better with numbers. And, and all of that might be true. You know, it's certainly true of me, but, you know, I'm absolutely still creative. And I think engineering is, is the field that demands the most creativity. And so I just really try and, and, and knock that point home. Yeah, I think it's it's funny, Jess. I would I would tell you I asked that question of at the end of all these of these interviews, and you said that it would be difficult to answer, and then it took you about 0.1 seconds to come up with an answer. <laughs> <laughs> because you're yeah, and it's interesting because you're fundamentally diverging in your thinking, but um, I, I think it's a great answer. It uh, yeah, I can I can personally relate to that. I think that a key takeaway I would add is just that you, you just. Um, anyone that does sports knows this and, and it, most things are like that. You can become good at almost anything if you practice. Exactly. We just don't practice creativity. I, I think that's great. Absolutely. Hey, is there, is there anything else you'd, uh, you'd like to add or just in, in closing and then we, we need to wrap up. Uh, no, I, I, I think I would just want to add that, you know, if, if anybody's interested in kind of working or, or hearing more about any of these kind of initiatives we have at Penn state, feel free to, to contact me, but I just want to say, I really appreciate the conversation, Jeremy, it's been, it's been great to kind of discuss these things with you. Um, definitely very, very insightful and, and been really nice to reflect on. Absolutely. I've appreciated the conversation as well. And I really just congratulate you on the work you're doing. I think it's very important in addressing some of the, the very real workforce issues that are, that are facing our country and the whole world. So yeah, thank you for doing what you're doing. Thanks very and much. With that, we will wrap up and uh, this has been Professor Jess Menold from Penn State and the Industrial Transformation Podcast. Thanks for listening to the Industrial Transformation Podcast, a production of Business Builders Media. Learn more about how KCF can help you on your industrial transformation journey at kcftech.com and check out more shows on businessbuildersmedia.com.